The Electronic Intifada. Intifada Electronic. Intifada Electronica. This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada Podcast. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll be featuring audio from a presentation earlier this year at the Palestine Center in Washington, D.C., featuring Rahul Saxena of Palestine Legal and Omar Shakar of the Center for Constitutional Rights. They're talking about the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, its growth, and its role as a powerful organizational tool, and the current legislative efforts in the U.S. to try and suppress and punish BDS activists and activism. So stay tuned for that. Uh, But before we go to our first segment, let me just say thank you to you, our audience across the world, for listening to this podcast and sharing it with your family and friends and communities, activism circles. Uh, If you have a moment, it would help us out a lot if you could go to our iTunes page, leave a review, and give us, of course, a five-star rating. And last but not least, we're still in our fun drive. We're working to bring you even more exclusive content in 2017, but we can only do that with your help. By supporting the Electronic Intifada, you make sure we can publish original, hard-hitting reporting and analysis about Palestine every day and empower those working for justice with sound information and education. So please donate uh, at electronicintifada.net. Also sign up for our email list. And of course, we thank you. And now here's the Electronic Intifada podcast. A senior student at Earlham College in Indiana has been selected as one of just three Rhodes Scholars by the Rhodes Trust for its inaugural Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Palestine program. Hashem Abushama, who joins us today on the podcast, grew up in the Palestinian refugee camp of Al-Arub, just north of Hebron in the occupied West Bank, and is headed to Oxford University, along with Diala al-Masri and Nur Arafa, who is a researcher and a policy fellow at the Palestinian think tank Ashabaka. In 2015, Hashem became the first ever youth representative of Palestine refugees at the United Nations and has served as the president of the student government at Earlham, which last year passed a resolution urging the university to divest from corporations that profit from Israel's violations of Palestinian rights. Hashem Abushama, it's so good to have you back with us here at the Electronic Intifada. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. So first off, congratulations on your Rhodes Scholarship. Uh, you're the third student from Earlham College to ever receive one. And I read that the last Earlham student who won a Rhodes uh, before you was from the class of 1917, which is exactly a century ago. Tell us about what this means to you. Well, for me, I think, you know, it means reaching a new milestone for um, students at Earlham. I think it's opening up more opportunities for the student body. Um, um, but it also means a lot to where I come from, uh, to Palestine and the refugee camp that I grew up in. Uh, in addition to being the first from Elam in 100 years, I'm also one of the first two Rhodes Scholars from Palestine in this historic launch, uh, launch of the program in the Middle East. And I think that represents um, a lot for me and my community, and this is why I insisted that the press release uh, should be sent first to the primary schools uh, in my refugee camp uh, because I do think that this is representative of um, a breakthrough, um, a new ceiling. And what has the response been from your community back in El Arub, uh, including your teachers? It's been it's been beautiful. I will start with my mom's words because I was in, in Arub actually when the news came out. 
Um, and I could hear my mom in the kitchen saying, I've always heard of Oxford University, but never imagined that one of my kids would actually make it there. And I told her that I would take that as a compliment. Um, so I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it represents just a big milestone. Um, and I think it stands as a strong political statement from the community and from myself to the world that, that in the alleys of Palestine refugee camps are big dreams that can reach the United Nations and Oxford University. And what will you be studying at Oxford? So I'm thinking of pursuing two master's degrees. The first would be an MSc in Global Governance and Diplomacy, and the second would be an MSc in Refugee and Forced Migration Studies. And, uh, and talk about your childhood growing up in Arub, uh, which is in the southern occupied West Bank, uh, and what your plans are when you return to Palestine after your time at Oxford. So, yeah, I grew up in Al-Arub. I attended the uh, Anurwa uh, primary schools. Um, and then I went to the Palestinian Authority public schools uh, for the high school. Um, and I finished the Tawjihi successfully in 2012 um, and got 98.8%, which was one of the highest scores in the district. That's, um, the, that's the Palestinian uh, national high school exams. Exactly, yeah. and those and, and those are you know those are very competitive, and there's a uh, there's a lot of media coverage when the scores come out. All of the scores are usually announced in the newspapers and the TV channels and radio radio stations. Um, so it was it was definitely uh, a big thing. It was it still is actually the highest score in the history of my high school. Um, so and after that, I was expected, of course, to study either medicine or engineering. Uh, a lot of Arab parents would. You know, would want that, um, and I was offered a scholarship to study medicine in Poland, um, and I almost accepted the scholarship because of the financial uh, burdens that my family um, faces. Um, but then I, I ended up rejecting the scholarship. I took a gap year, um, and I wanted to apply to schools in the U.S. to study international relations. Um, so this is what happened. And four years after, I'm I'm here now. And so after after graduating from Oxford, I'm hoping um, to go to get involved in the sector of uh, community building. And growing up in Arub um, and you know, being exposed to the Palestinian curriculum, um, I think the the curriculum has a lack of uh, critical political education on Palestine. Most of my education about Palestine came through my grandmother and the stories of my grandmother. So it's been a question that I've been dealing with, um, and I'm thinking of ways in which we can create alternative mediums for critical political education, uh, utilizing different forms of education and building upon my global education, but also global networks. So, for example, there's a rising hip hop scene uh, in Arub that hasn't been sufficiently and efficiently contextualized. What does that mean for the Palestinian struggle? How does it fit with the current global discourse around hip hop and the, the messaging of hip hop? So this is, for example, one of the questions that I'm trying to um, push our community to reflect upon. Another question would be the intersectionality, the discourse of intersectionality that BDS and Students for Justice in Palestine have been definitely functioning within. Uh, so how do I, as a Palestinian activist who has had the luck and opportunities to get exposed to such conversations. How do I bring them back home? Um, so I'm thinking now of starting a community center after I finish my master's in Arub, um, and then try to start these conversations and hopefully, you know, see how that goes and see if we can expand that to other uh, localities within Palestine. It's the voice of Hashem Abushama. Um, 
Hashem, we last spoke to you about a year and a half ago during the Earlham College push for divestment from corporations that profit from Israel's occupation. Mm-hmm. You were the Student Senate co-president and a member of the BDS Earlham campaign. Um, part of the campaign part of the campaign was to push the university, <coughs> uh, as you said, to stop silencing Palestinian students on campus. Can mm-hmm. you talk about your work with uh, the BDS campaign there and what the campaign looks like a year and a half later? Yes, so I, I, I've been involved in the BDS campaign since my freshman year. Um, and one of our main focuses has been the divestment campaign to pressure Erlam's administration to divest their money from companies that are complicit in the Israeli occupation, namely the three companies, Caterpillar, um, HP, and Motorola Resolution. Um, we passed a resolution last year, um, and it was passed by consensus, so everyone in the Senate actually agreed um, to the resolution. And then the resolution was presented to the Board of Trustees um, a semester after as part of the overall student government report to the Board of Trustees. Um, and expectedly and unsurprisingly, uh, the Board of Trustees didn't comply and didn't take our concerns as student representatives seriously. Um, so that was followed with um, conversations uh, with the student government and also a shift of focus. We tried to do more um, activities that try to raise awareness about the situation in Palestine. We focused a little bit more on the boycott element um, of the campaign, trying to stir more conversation among the student body to create even more pressure um, on the administration. That was, that was successful. Uh, we ended up de-shelving um, the, the shelves of the coffee shop uh, from Sabra Hummus. Uh, another you know, example of companies that are not only complicit, but also benefiting from the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And to be very honest with you, now we're in a very critical position where we, you know, we have um, organized this union body to make a very strong political statement to the administration and the board of trustees, and they haven't complied. Uh, so what do we do now? Um, so our ho- hopes are high. Uh, Erlam has just selected a new president um, who's an African-American, the first in the history of Erlam. I do acknowledge that it's pretty late for a, a liberal arts college like Erlam to choose its first uh, president of color. Um, it's, been more, uh, it's been more than 200 years. Um, so, but with that said, I think there are a lot of hopes. Um, he, was, he was actually um, involved in the BDS South Africa. Uh, campaign in the 1980s at Erlam, uh, and he did speak about that in his activism um, at Erlam as a student, and he was actually the co-president of the student government when he was a student at Erlam. Uh, so we're hoping that he will actually be more representative of the concerns and the collective voices of the student body. And what are your thoughts uh, as the BDS movement expands, especially on college campuses, uh, you know, and and especially under this um, this climate now, you know, that the U.S. Senate just passed a, a unanimous, a, unanimously passed a bill, uh, you know, seeking to, to really criminalize um, supporters and, and activists within the BDS movement on college campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts about how uh, students, especially Palestinian students, um, are, are able to organize under these kinds of conditions that, that are slowly expanding across the United States? So uh, let me start by saying that I've always been a big believer in the, the BDS movement, but these uh, these flat, uh, you know clashes or responses from administrative um, politicians in the U.S. I, I think reaffirm me that 
you know, BDS is actually making progress. We're getting to a place where we're actually pushing uh, people who are formulating policies um, around foreign policy and around Israel and Palestine. Uh, so I think it presents a major challenge for BDS, but also gives us a message that we're breaking through a new ceiling um, now. Um, so that's that's what I seek my hope from in this very tough moment. Uh, I think one of the mechanisms in which you know, activists can actually protect themselves in this moment is building coalitions uh, and continuing the work of um, um, building coalitions with other marginalized um, groups. Uh, for us as Erlem, it's been very instrumental and uh, educational. Uh, to um, continue to build coalitions with the Black Student Union, with Spectrum, with uh, uh, students for free Tibet. Um, so I think that kind of create, it creates a unity that, that's powerful. But at the same time, it gives us a lot of challenge, challenges to work on. Um, because for me, I think one of the biggest challenges is how do I bring this conversation of intersectionality to the larger conversation and how do I make it relevant to people at home so I think I take it very seriously when I talk about intersectionality and solidarity I don't it's only as, as a strategic tactic I also see it as a commitment to each other's struggles um, and this is exactly what I'm trying to do with the idea of community center in the future after I graduate from Oxford well Hashim Abushama again congratulations Mabruk on your Rhodes Scholarship Thank you. And, uh, and we look forward to your work of course for years and years to come Thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada Podcast Thank you so much You're listening to the Electronic Intifada Podcast Visit us online at electronicintifada.net or follow us on Twitter at Intifada The Electronic Intifada Intifada Electronica Electronic Intifada Thanks for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. We go now to a presentation about boycott, divestment, and sanctions and the popular movements around the world which are engaged in BDS campaigning. Here in the U.S., there are current legislative efforts to suppress and punish BDS activism, as we talked about in our first segment. In April, the Washington, D.C.-based Palestine Center hosted a talk by Omar Shaker of the Center for Constitutional Rights and Rahul Saxena, a staff attorney with Palestine Legal. Both organizations are in partnership to defend the legal rights of activists to engage with the BDS movement and exercise their rights to free speech. They came together to speak about why BDS is such a powerful tool and how activists can continue to grow the movement in spite of the legislative tactics to undermine it. Many thanks to the Palestine Center for the use of this great audio. And now here's Omar Shaker, followed by Rahul Saxena. Thank you all for coming. Um, it's a real honor to be back at the Palestine Center. And thank you, Zina and Samira, for all your incredible work um, here at the center and for organizing uh, this event on such a really important and timely topic. Um, it's also an honor to speak with my colleague Rahul, who, as you'll hear, has really led the Herculean effort to, to, re to respond to the wave of anti-BDS legislation that's cropped up over the last couple of years. So it's an honor to speak with you as well. Um, just to give you a little bit of an overview, in my 20 minutes, what I hope to do is to talk about the context part of the title, um, and specifically looking historically, comparatively, and theoretically at why boycott divestment sanctions is such an effective um, tool. Um, and that will sort of provide the backdrop to Rahul's comments around the challenges um, facing the movement. 
and sort of the reason why I think we see increasing efforts to suppress BDS. Um, and I thank Rahul for taking the pessimistic or the challenges side and the more legal side, allowing me to be a little bit more theoretical in my comments. Um, I will draw on several historical examples, but one that I'll draw from significantly is South Africa, as I was just in South Africa last month and I've done a lot of thinking around uh, BDS in that context. Um, I'm going to make three pretty simple points, um, and then I'll, I'll hand it over. And all of those points, I think, underscore why BDS is such an effective tool. And those points are, first, it helps reframe the conversation. Secondly, it changes the calculus of um, Israeli activists. Uh, uh, and third, it mobilizes communities um, in the international community. So I'm going to go through those three points, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Rahul. So the first point really is that boycott, divestment, and sanctions changes the framework. And what do I mean by that? What I mean about that is in the U.S. context, one of the most significant challenges we face is the perception that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is this thousand-year-old conflict, right? It goes back to the beginning of time. It's about these people that hate each other, religion, ethnicity. It can never be resolved. Um, it's communal hatred at its core. As the logic goes, there's two equal sides, right? There's two narratives or powers, and um, states are powers that are equally culpable. Or, in fact, if they're not equally culpable, the Palestinians are more responsible because they're the violent terrorist type. And that logic goes further, right? And it says that each side has its legitimate blind spots. Um, it has claims and that it's only misunderstanding and hatred. And if only the people could come together and uh, dialogue and compromise and listen to the other, then we could have reconciliation and we could have coexistence. Right, of course, we know that this narrative is simply false for a lot of reasons, right? We know that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, for the most part, a modern struggle that probably dates back, by most historical accounts, to the late 19th century over land, resources, and rights. And it's not so different than other post-colonial conflicts that we've seen. Um, and we also know that a simplistic account of two sides overlooks the power dynamic overlooks the fact that we face a situation of a colonizer and a colonized, an oppressor and oppressed, and we have a single power, right? A single power between the river and the sea that controls the everyday lives of the people that live there. Um, so why, does boycott, why is boycott divestment sanction so effective? It's effective because it focuses and it shifts attention to the underlying system, right? It looks at policies and institutions as opposed to a tackling a particular state or individuals. It looks at a system of inequality, a system that includes corporations, international corporations, American corporations, Israeli corporations, and even Palestinian corporations in some case. And by doing so, right, it, it really puts that attention on that unjust system and not on the role of any particular side. So as an international community, when there is uh, when you take on boycott, divestment, and sanctions, what you're essentially doing is saying, look, I'm not Israeli, I'm not Palestinian, right? What I'm doing, though, is saying that I don't have a role to discuss a solution. It's not my job to tell you one state, two state, 14 states. What I can tell you is I'm a part of a, a church or a university or an academic union, and in that context, I do not want my institution invested in profiting over a system of discrimination and rights abuses. It's a 
it, it really takes what's a very distant, far-removed issue and puts it in the terrain of your own specific context. And by doing that, um, you basically um, are able to say, look, let the people on the ground, when they're in equality, decide a solution. My job is to try and level that playing field by having that institution I'm affiliated with not actively supporting one side of the conflict. So it puts emphasis on the underlying rights abuse, but it does so using a language and a framework that's universal and inclusive. What it basically says is it's not about me being Palestinian or you being Israeli. It's about ending an unjust system so we can live together as equals. And again, that's not talking about one state, two states. It's talking about what the root injustice is. Um, and this is all happening at the same time that the Palestinian narrative itself is shifting. Right? We see the Palestinian narrative moving more and more from a nationalist framework to a more rights-based discourse. So what do I mean by that? I think Ali Abu Netma in his book One Country, I think has a very powerful anecdote that I think speaks to what's happening in Palestine. In his book, in two, he, he talks about a 2004 encounter in which a farmer from the, the Palestinian town of Qalqilia is interviewed. He was displaced by Israel's wall in the West Bank. And, he, and in this conversation he has with a PLO legal advisor, he says the following, and I quote, I don't care anymore about the Palestinian flag. I don't care anymore about the word Palestine. I don't care anymore about symbols. I just want to have the same rights as those settlers across the street. I want to be able to drive down this road. I want to be able to send my kids to the hospital or go on vacation when I want to go on vacation. Ali Abu Ni'ma, reflecting on this incident, writes in his book, and I quote, Palestinian methods, uh, message and methods must make clear that the target is not the Israeli system, but an unjust system that denies, sorry, it's not the Israeli people, but an unjust system that denies one people their rights, identity, and dignity, and condemns the other to live in, to, in increasing isolation, fear, and moral corruption. Right? So I think increasingly the Palestinian movement and it's learning from the international context. If you want to look at the world today, I think, you can compare struggles like the Kurdish conflict or the Chechnyan conflict or the Kashmiri conflict, ones that have remained nationalist in framework, right, about, you know, uh, fundamentally self-determination, with those, say, like South Africa or, you know, Sudan, which were framed in a universal language, whether it be apartheid or genocide, one that allowed movements to build around. And what we see when we look at Palestinian activists from hunger strikes by prisoners to bus boycotts, we see a new language who takes their target as the international community as opposed to historically the Arab world, where the Arab world was seen as the primary actor that was going to bring Palestinian liberation. And I think BDS has succeeded um, in conjunction with the shift in the Palestinian narrative. And, and what's an example of this? I think for many of us that went to university in the early 2000s, the framework we dealt with was, well, there's occupation, but there's suicide bombing. It was sort of this two sides, what do I do? Today, if you talk to most college students, that's not the framework. The framework is Gaza attacks, we know Israel's committing abuse, what do we do about it? And that shift, I think, has a lot to do with BDS. So point one is it changes frameworks. The second point I want to make is it changes the calculus of Israel and Israeli politicians. Of course, the purpose of BDS, right? I mean, the reason why you engage in boycott, divestment, sanctions is to put pressure on the stronger party, right? It is the most effective, moral, nonviolent way of exerting a pressure on the stronger power to come to the table and end the policies and rights abuse. 
rights abuses. And so you want to force them to make that change, right? And it grows out of a history. The history shows us that colonial regimes do not relinquish power without popular struggle and resistance, without sustained international pressure. So, of course, that framework exists. People see it, whether it be looking at Algeria, whether it be looking at South Africa. But people always say, well, Israel's different, right? I mean, Israel won't change its policies. When you boycott and when you do BDS, what it does to Israel is it makes it double down. It makes, um, it makes them want to engage further in the occupation. But I think the reality is different. If you look today what's happening within the Jewish American movement or even the movement within Israel, you see the develop you see strong divides over the issue of Israel. Right? You see groups like J Street and Jewish Voice for Peace that are basically telling Israeli officials, even those within the Zionist tent, saying that if you want to preserve Israel as a Jewish democratic state, you need to make progress on the occupation. Because they've learned from history that the longer Israel goes down this road, then um, you know the, the more it threatens um, a South African model. So what I wanted to do here is is to look a little bit at the South African experience because I think an understudied part of the if the Israel South African comparison is the way in which the white Afrikaner population in South Africa, the Boer population, came itself to change its own calculus and and, and what led F. W. de Klerk, the last president of apartheid South Africa to ultimately win that Nobel Prize with Nelson Mandela. That's sort of an understudied part of this example. So I wanted to spend a few minutes talking a little bit about that shift that happened in South Africa, because I think it's very instructive and points to why BDS is successful. But before I do that, just a little bit about um, South Africa and a little bit about Afrikaners. So Afrikaner, it, it's a term that refers to the white South African population that came in the 17th century from, that are you know, of Dutch origin. And the Afrikaner narrative is similarly like the, the Zionist narrative, one that's a narrative of expulsion, persecution, redemption, and rebirth that characterized their struggle. Their narrative starts with a single day in history, April 6, 1652, when they set up on the Cape of Good Hope a colony. Mandela wrote in his book that this is the day white South Africans um, commemorate the founding of their country and Africans revile as the beginning of 300 years of enslavement. So a similar type of thing as the Nekba. And if you look back at 19th and 20th century South African history, the Boer population languished actually under British colonialism. Actually, the term concentration camp was first used to refer to what the British put the white South Africans in in the early 20th century. Um, they initiated a scorched earth policy that destroyed tens of thousands of white South African homes, set up concentration camps, and tens of thousands were killed. This event is at the heart of the white South African narrative. F.W. de Klerk actually once declared, and I quote, the Anglo-Boer War burnt itself in the collective consciousness of my people, the Afrikaners, like no other event in history. Actually, this history is what made the white South African population determined never again to forego th their independence. Not so different than Zionism, their narrative was we need to control a state and be in power or else we risk being subsumed by forces that dislike us. So in 1948, the nationalists came to power on a platform of formally erecting apartheid in power. And I quote from the Nationalist Party platform from 1948, quote, the choice between us is one of two divergent courses, either that of integration, which in the long run would amount to national suicide on the part of whites, or that of apartheid, which professes to preserve the identity and safeguard the future of every race. 
Um, Don Krauss, who is the chairman of the Johannesburg Holocaust Survivors Association, wrote, quote, the, what the nationalists were trying to do was protect the Afrikaner, especially after what was done to them in the Boer War, where the Afrikaner was reduced almost to a beggar on returning after the war, whether it was on the battlefield or some sort of concentration camp. They did it to protect the Afrikaner, his predominance after 1948, his culture. Right? I mean, if you replace those terms with Zionist, it's a very similar logic to what's led to the creation of State of Israel and the maintain, maintenance of the occupation. Another parallel that people lose uh, between South Africa, between Zionism and Afrikaner nationalism is the role of religion. Mandela once wrote, talking about the Afrikaners, I quote, Like the Israeli journey to the promised land, his was the fulfillment of God's promise and the justification for their view that South Africa should be a white man's country forever. In fact, the Afrikaners compared their flight to the Israeli exodus from Egypt and saw their own republic as a new Israel. In addition, the white South African population reversed the indigenous, the indigenous relationship, right? They thought of themselves as the indigenous people. And they saw themselves as in a tough neighborhood, right, surrounded by uncivilized people. I, in 1976, South Africa put out a, popu, uh, a publication. This is a quote from that publication. Apartheid South Africa. Israel and South Africa have one thing above all else in common. Quote, they're both situated in a predominantly hostile world inhabited by dark people. They used colonial logic and racism. They saw the people around them as inferior. They also had contradictions, right? They were a democracy in a sea of autocracy. They had technology. They sought to hide their encounters with their indigenous population. They actually depict their history, including 1948, as a fight for independence. And when you, when you have that history, the only option you have is to erase the existence of the indigenous population. Of course, everybody remembers Moshe Dayan's famous quote in 1969, reflecting on 20 years of Israel, that the success was replacing old Palestinian villages with the names of Israeli villages. Well, I submit to you a quote from Mandela's autobiography. And he's, he, he wrote in 1955 about driving in Durban. And, and this is a quote from his book. Quote, from Durban, I drove along the coast past Port Shepstone and Port St. John's, small and lovely colonial towns that dotted the simmering beaches fronting the Indian Ocean. While memorized by the, mesmerized by the beauty of the area, I was constantly rebucked by the buildings and streets that bear the names of white imperialists who suppress the very people whose names belong there. And of course, the last similarity that people forget is they're both obsessed about demographics. De Klerk once wrote that foremost among these was our conviction that without apartheid, our people would be swamped by the vast black majority, and that this would inevitably lead to the extinction of our hard-won right to self-determination. So you're probably asking me, Omar, you spent three minutes talking about South African history. What does that have to do with BDS? Well, South African officials have some advice for Israelis, actually. Um, Peek Botha, the former South African foreign minister, was asked what advice he would give Israelis about dealing with the struggle. And I quote, We could explain how we overcame our fear of majority rule and began to realize that majority rule was something in our interest in our long run. If the Israelis are interested, we can, in all humility, explain how we came to the point of transforming our society. BDS, in the South African context, provided the bridge that allowed the Afrikaner population to go from this narrative of victimization, of persecution, of not being able to forego apartheid, which was necessary to protect their national identity, to living in a system of equality because of BDS. How do I know that? F.W. de Klerk again writes, quote, this, we, 
we realized the struggle could not be won by brutal, unconventional operations which were in conflict with common decency and basic morality. No evidence that the assassination of opponents had the slightest effect on the final outcome of the struggle, other than causing further personal suffering and bitterness. De Klerk writes about the moment of watching Mandela take the oath of office. And he writes about this moment. He reflected on his ancestors, his Afrikaner ancestors, and he writes, the dream they had of being free and separate people with their own right to national self-determination in their own national state in Southern Africa, the ideal to which I myself had clung until I finally concluded that if pursued would bring disaster to all people of our country, including my own. BDS led the clerk to realize that the best way to preserve the place of Afrikaners in the future of South Africa was to open itself up to a society for quality. That realization saved lives, and it brought in the Nobel Peace Prize. Everybody wants to know, when will the Palestinian Mandela emerge? My question is, when will the Israeli de Klerk emerge? And I think we will see one, and it's because of BDS efforts. So I want to end with my third point, which is BDS also mobilizes people and movements. Um, Hugh Evans, who, who was an Australian humanitarian, talked about BDS in the following terms. Quote, history shows us that all protest movements rely on symbols, boycotts, strikes, sit-ins, flags, songs, symbolic action on whatever scale, from the Montgomery bus boycott to wearing a simple wristband. It's designed to disrupt our everyday complacency and force people to think. Right? So the idea is you move out of your everyday and you actually make this conflict, these sets of human rights abuses, something that's a real issue on your campus, in your union. You're debating and you're discussing it because you have a direct affiliation to it. And that mobilizes people, right? I mean, um, if you look at South Africa, Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop and Nobel Peace Laureate said, and I quote, in South Africa, we could not have achieved our freedom and just peace without the help of people around the world who through the use of nonviolent means such as boycott and divestment encourage their governments and other corporate actors to reverse decades-long support for the apartheid regime. And we're seeing this again in North Carolina and Mississippi in the wave of anti-LGBTQI um, uh, legislation in place around bathrooms, right? We're seeing Bruce Springsteen and all sorts of, 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 of leaders, you know, boycott. And although that's symbolic, although not having a show does little to stop, um, you know, to change a bathroom bill, the reality is the accumulation of that pressure together forces, it, it mobilizes people, supports the movement, and forces leaders to change their calculus. And I'll conclude by saying we're starting to see that in Palestine. If we look at the history of the last decade, um, again, we used to be stuck in this rut in the early 2000s, post 9-11, after the Intifada, in this country, if not being able to advance the conversation. Palestine was a fringe movement on many campuses. Those that worked on this issue could not build coalitions. We could not get co-sponsorship of major departments. That's all shifting, right? We see increasingly diverse groups, all following the call of Palestinian civil society in 2005, 171 NGOs calling for divestment. Today, we see the American Studies Association, other very prominent academic institutions endorsing boycott and divestment. We see student governments across the country Right? I mean, I, I, I did my universities, you heard the, uh, my studies at, at Stanford, you heard my introduction. Stanford has a $21.4 billion endowment. 
Last year, the student government, in the face of widespread opposition, endorsed a call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And we're starting to see that take real effects. We have companies like Veolia, like G4S, like SodaStream that are shifting their operations as a result of the pressure they're facing from boycott, divestment, and sanctions. So you're going to hear from Rahul about the rise of anti-BDS legislation. But I want to make this point, and this is really what I'll, I'll conclude on, um, is to say that the reason why increasingly we're seeing Israel advocacy organizations move to anti-BDS legislation is because they're losing on the merits. They're losing the debate on college campuses. They're, they're even losing on their other suppression tactics. In our report that, that was mentioned, we talk about things like legal threats and lawsuits and academic freedom actions, but they're losing on all fronts. Courts are rejecting their argument. Administrators are refusing to, more and more to discipline students. So what are these groups doing as a last-ditch effort over the last year? They've raised money and said, we do one thing well. We lobby legislators. So let's turn to those very legislators and try to have them stop it because nothing else is working. But that's failing. So I want to end with a quote. Um, and then I'll give it to Rahul. And the quote is a piece of hope, because you're going to hear some things that might make you pessimistic from him. So I want to I leave you with some hope. No? Okay. Well, in any case, I'm still going to leave you with some hope. Um, Israeli human rights lawyer Michael Safard had an op-ed in Haaretz uh, two months ago. And he, was in, and he was addressing the question of how it is that civil society organizations, he was talking about the crackdown within Israel and Palestine, but it's really universal. How is it that they continue to make progress in spite of significant repression? And I'll, I'm just going to read his quote and I'll, I'll sit down. Quote, the answer is simple. The world is driven by diverse forces. We vividly see and feel the political, economic, and military forces daily. But there are also less visible forces, whose mode of operation is less overt. One of them is actually an idea, that all human beings are equal, and that all deserve rights because they are human beings. That idea is responsible for the greatest and most important revolutions in history. It's an idea that operates like dark matter in the universe, in silence. And it together with those who oppose the occupation, is pushing us to end the occupation and to bring about a substantive change in the way Israeli society functions. It vests these ostensibly small and weak organizations with inexplicable might. And it will bring an end to the occupation. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Rahul Saxena. From, um, I'm a staff attorney at Palestine Legal. And thank you for having me, and thank you all for coming. So I, as Omar mentioned, I'm going to talk a little bit about anti-BDS legislation, and I am going to try to not be a pessimist about it. <laughs> going to try to be optimistic. Um, so in Palestine Legal, just for some background, um, our, our mission is to uh, protect and defend the, the, the civil and constitutional rights of people in the U.S. who speak out in favor of Palestinian freedom. Um, we have we have four staff attorneys. We're kind of scattered across the country. Um, I, I'm based in Chicago. I went to law school here in, in D.C., so I'm very happy to be back. Um, so today I'm going to kind of cover, I'm going to try to cover these five topics. If I go on and on and on, please just tell me, <laughs> tell me to hurry up. I'll try to be relatively quick. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the, the legal background, the, the legal basis for, for the BDS movement, to put it, Put, to put the B BDS movement in, in, in the legal context, 
Um, and then I want to talk about the suppression of BDS. First, by talking about the broader context of that suppression, um, that we, with the Center for Constitutional Rights, as Omar, Omar mentioned, that we, we covered in this report called the Palestine Exception to Free Speech. Uh, and then I want to talk about what we refer to as the two different waves of anti-BDS legislation. The first wave in 2014, the second wave, which we're currently experiencing, 2015 and 2016. And finally, I want to end with um, the, the, our legal response and also the organizing response that we've seen to these um, BD, anti-BDS legislative initiatives. So is there anybody here from um, the Freedom to Boycott groups in Maryland or Virginia? Okay, so maybe when I get to the organizing part, I can hand it over to, to you to talk a little bit about what, what you successfully did um, organizing against some BDS legislative initiatives here. Okay, so first, the, a little bit about the First Amendment. How many people here are lawyers? I know this is DC, so probably a lot of you. <laughs> okay, so this, uh, what is the First Amendment and why do we have the First Amendment? What is the First Amendment? Free speech. Free speech. Religion. Free speech, religion, yeah. Um, you know, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution protects the rights to freedom of religion and freedom of speech from government interference. I'm going to focus mostly on the speech part. Now, why, why, why is that important? Why, why is the speech aspect of the First Amendment important to our society? So you can have a legitimate and equal uh, dialogue. Exactly, a le legitimate, equal dialogue, um, free of government censorship or suppression. Like I, you know, I, I think about my work at Palestine Legal often in, in terms of not just us being a, 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 an organization that supports Palestinian freedom, but also a pro-democracy organization. I think that as a democracy, you know, we, we call ourselves a democracy, although that could be debatable. Um, I think that a foundational aspect of, of what a democracy is, is the fact that we have open debate, we have open dialogue, and we're allowed to challenge each other's opinions and beliefs and viewpoints, especially on important political issues. And if we don't have that, then, democracy, then we don't have democracy. Um, and a democracy thrives, a democracy is strongest when we're allowed to challenge each other's ideas, when we're allowed to have a marketplace of ideas um, where ideas and expression is challenged. Um, that, that's, that's kind of the foundational basis, I think, of democracy. But when one side of a debate is silenced, it hurts not just our ability to challenge our um, society's opinions and beliefs on that issue, it hurts democracy as a whole. And that's what we're seeing when it comes to, that's what we've seen when it comes to Palestine, um, the, 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 the dialogue about Palestine in this country. Um, and so what, what is speech? Speech, you know, the, the Supreme Court has held that speech is not just what we say, it's not just our, our words, it's also our expressive conduct. So, you know, the, the political statement I wear on my t-shirt or the street theater or the art that I have outside um, or a sign that I hold, a poster that has a political statement. Uh, and in 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court held that boycotts, um, the, you know, this country has a long tradition of, of boycotts, um, but, you know, boycotts that use legal means, you know, not riot or revolution, I think the, the Supreme Court said, but legal means to bring about political, economic, and social change, um, to vindicate rights are protected by the First Amendment. So, the, you know, the, the BDS movement, our right to advocate for boycotts of Israel, our right to advocate for BDS, is something that is protected by the First Amendment. And I think our Supreme Court has been very, very clear on that. Um, 
so so keep you know keep that in mind. So now now I'm going to talk about the suppression of that right. Um, you know, as as been as it's been mentioned, we we worked with the Center for Constitutional Rights to to release this report called the Palestine Exception to Free Speech, in which we documented what we see is um, what is actually a, a a campaign to suppress Palestine advocacy in this country, and it happens in many forms. So when I say when I say suppression, so in 2015, Palestine Legal. Um, we responded to something like 240 incidents of suppression of Palestine advocacy in this country. The vast majority of that suppression happened on college campuses. Um, I think 80% happened on college campuses because that's kind of where the, 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 the BDS movement is right now the most active. Um, but when I say suppression, what do I mean? Some of the tactic, tactics that we've seen that we documented in this report include censorship of Palestine advocacy, or even censorship of Palestine symbols. Some of you may remember the case of the, the GW student right, right on the corner here who um, was asked to remove his Palestine flag from his window um, just a few months ago when there were clearly other flags hanging from windows. So not just censorship, but also disparate treatment. Um, school administration after school administration after school administration is pressured by Israel advocacy groups to crack down on Palestinian advocacy, um, treat them differently than, than they do other, other student organizing. False accusations is a big one. False accusations of anti-Semitism um, based exclusively on speech critical of Israel. And on the flip side, false accusations of support for terrorism based on, on speech um, supportive of Palestinian freedom. Bureaucratic barriers, school administration setting up these hurdles that SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, have to go through um, seems kind of like a, you know, maybe not a big deal, but it's actually quite nefarious. And the intent of it is to uh, chill speech, to dissuade students from organizing Palestine-related events. Um, disproportionate punishment against students for justice in Palestine, cancellation of events. Um, and the, a big one that, that Omar alluded to is merit, threats of meritless lawsuits. So in that context, in the context of this like campaign to suppress Palestine advocacy across the country, Omar mentioned um, that th that suppression, you know, the, the goal of it is to squash the debate, is to squash speech in favor of Palestinian freedom. And now we're increasingly see that suppression happening in state legislatures across the country. So this is a map of the states that just in the past few months have introduced, or in some cases passed, anti-BDS legislation. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what I mean by anti-BDS legislation. The light blue ones? The dark blue ones. Dark Sorry, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, it's, it's almost 50-50. Uh, quite a few in the north. Yeah, quite a few in the north. California. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'll talk a little bit uh, details about what, what exactly I mean by anti-BDS legislation. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about which ones have passed and what, the, what they do. But I think, it's, um, I think it's important to remember as, I, as I'm talking about this, and the, this is where my, the, my optimism is going to come through, is remember that the, our First Amendment protects our right to advocate for BDS. Our First Amendment protects our right to engage in boycotts. And no bill, no, no law, no bill, no state legislative initiative can 
um, can overwrite that constitutional protection. So going back to what happened in 2014, does anybody remember in terms of anti-BDS legislation? What kind of bills were we seeing and why? Exactly. So I think at the tail end of 2013, the American Studies Association passed their uh, BDS resolution. Um, and within weeks, we saw um, bills being introduced in a few states. I think it was New York, Maryland, and Illinois, um, seeking to punish the ASA. Um, and they did that by, um, defund by threatening to defund schools or reduce funding for schools, reduced state funding for schools that housed ASA or housed an association that, um, that passed a BDS resolution. And so none of these bills passed. Why did none of them pass? Because they were clearly blatantly anti un unconstitutional and because there was a very um, strong organizing effort, including Freedom to Boycott in Maryland um, coalition and including a, a great coalition of activists in New York that came together and fought these bills. Um, so at, at Palestine Legal and the Center for Constitutional Rights, National Lawyers Guild, we made the legal argument um, that no, sorry state lawmakers, you cannot do this. You, you as politicians don't have the right to threaten funding um, to suppress speech. That's a violation of basic, basic First Amendment principles. Um, so here's a quote, the New York bill, this is about the New York bill, um, is an ill-considered response to the American Studies Association resolution and would trample on academic freedoms and would chill speech and dissent. Um, who's, where's this quote from? Any guesses? Not, not, not some left-wing legal organization or association, but our friends at the New York Times. <laughs> not exactly the, the, the Palestinian freedom fighters, but at, at least strong on uh, First Amendment and academic freedom issues. Um, so we had a good media, media criticism of these bills. Um, so fast forward, from 2014 to 2015, um, in the span of one year, the BDS movement started like gaining quite a bit of traction, especially on college campuses, divestment resolution after divestment resolution, and also in uh, religious institutions. And so lawmakers, you know, Israel advocacy groups got together again and said, what can we do? You know, these academic freedom threats didn't work. What can we do now? Um, we, can't, we can't make BDS illegal because um, there's this First Amendment problem. So how can we go around that? And so now what we're seeing is the proliferation of anti-BDS legislation um, that vary from state to state, but they all include three basic com components, or at least two of these three components. The first component is a blacklist. So, you know, this is, this is Israel advocacy organizations going to lawmakers and saying, you have to blacklist these people. In some cases, it's people. In some cases, some cases it's organizations. In some cases, it's corporations. Um, so in New York, for example, it's all of the above. Individuals would be blacklisted. Individuals, there's no, ge there's no limit in the ge geographic scope. So somebody in a village in India who supports BDS, if the bill in New York passes, would be blacklisted by the state of New York. It's crazy. Um, second component is a prohibition on state contracts. So they say, okay, we can't, we can't make boycotting Israel illegal, but what if we say... Um, if you boycott Israel, we're not going to let you do business with the state of New York or whatever state it is. 
And the third component is pension fund divestment. They're saying, all right, if you are a corporation and you boycott Israel, we don't, wanna, um, we don't want to have anything to do with you, so we're going to divest our pension fund from you. So this is, this is you know, lawmakers with Israel advocacy groups trying to be creative in um, their approach to you know, violating the First Amendment, basically. Um, but you know, there, are, there, there are basic constitutional principles that say you, know, you can't suppress protected speech and you can't use government, um, you, can't use go you can't use government funding, you can't use um, government levers as a way to suppress that speech. And there's actually very clear Supreme Court case law from the late 90s that says very directly the government cannot punish state contractors for, the view for their political viewpoints. And so these state contracting laws in particular are directly violate that very clear Supreme Court case law. So <laughs> I tried to fit it all in one slide, but they didn't all fit because there's so many of them. But this is kind of like an example of what's being introduced in the states. Um, you don't need to memorize it all right now because I'll give you a link to a website that has all the information you need. Um, the top five, Illinois, South Carolina, Florida, Indiana, and Arizona, have all passed and become law. Illinois was the first. It happened last year. And their bill, their law, um, requires the state to create a blacklist of foreign companies um, that boycott Israel and requires the state pension fund to divest from those companies. And so just about a month ago, the, the state of Illinois finally released their blacklist of foreign companies. Um, and it's been criticized. <laughs> it, it's, Illinois has actually become kind of a laughingstock in the media because on this blacklist appear companies that have said out loud, like, we have not boycotted Israel, we have no intention to do so. It also includes G4S, which is the target of BDS campaigns. Um, and so Illinois, Illinois has come under a lot of pressure um, and has been mocked um, for, for their blacklist. And it, it kind of goes to show, I think, why, how, how in a way the, these bills are, 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 are not only ineffective, but also these things are being created behind closed doors without any transparency, um, these, these, these lists. And, and in the end, they're, they're actually making a mockery of the state lawmakers who, who have... Um, who have been advocating for them. New York's so far, I think, is, is the most blatantly unconstitutional because, as I mentioned, its blacklist would, includes individuals. I think that's the only state that includes individuals right now, um, but that hasn't passed. I think one of the bills passed the, the state Senate, but it has not passed the Assembly. Um, and Pennsylvania has three different bills pending. One of them is an academic freedom bill, a la 2014. They missed that boat and forgot, didn't get the memo. Um, I don't think that that bill is going to be moving anywhere, though. So this is a quote about, I'm going to play the who said this again game. Um, this is a quote about the California bill. The bill, AB 2844, in print raises very serious and possibly insurmountable First Amendment concerns. Any guesses on who said that? <laughs> no, not Scalia. <laughs> it wasn't LA Times, and it wasn't you know, it wasn't a legal organization like Palestine Legal or CCR. It was the California Assembly Judiciary Committee Legal Analysis, which was released two days ago. Um, the the following day, yesterday, 
the the committee members made minor tweaks to the bill and passed it through the committee despite the possibly insurmountable First Amendment concerns. So this is kind of like what we're dealing with, lawmakers who don't even listen to their own legal analysts, let alone groups like Palestine Legal and CCR. Okay, so this is, you know, I think this is the most important slide. I've said it already, but this is really all you need to know. Your right to boycott and to advocate for BDS is protected by the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Um, there are all these anti-BDS bills out there, and a lot of people are talking about them, and a lot of people are concerned about them. And I actually think that the biggest threat that they pose is the chilling effect that they have. Because people say there are these anti-BDS bills, they are criminalizing us, they're, they're taking away our right to advocate for BDS and to boycott Israel, and that's not true, don't listen to them. Um, they, they might have these contracting provisions, they might have these pension fund investment provisions, and yes, they might have a blacklist, which is scary, and we should fight them, and our lawmakers um, should be held accountable. Um, our lawmakers should be in the business of protecting our rights and expanding our rights and defending our constitutional rights, not the other way around. But at the end of the day, I think the bottom line is we should keep in mind that none of these bills take away our right to advocate for BDS or to boycott Israel, and that's important. I want to talk a little bit about what Palestine Legal um, and our partners at CCR and the NLG, National Lawyers Guild are, are doing, and the ACLU, um, are doing to fight these bills. At Palestine Legal, I, I kind of see our, our job as, as threefold, and if any of, any of you disagree or have more, um, have more advice for us, like I, I, would, I would love to engage in a dialogue about what more we could be doing. But I think our, our job as a legal organization working on Palestine issues is, one, to, to track the bills and to provide resources, to, to track the bills and, and let people know which bills are where in their state. And so we've teamed up with, um, with our partners at the U.S. Campaign to End the Israeli Occupation and Jewish Voice for Peace to create a website called righttoboycott.org. Um, and if you go to that website, you'll see this map of the U.S. You can click on the state um, that has anti-BDS bill. It'll take you to a page that has different resources. Uh, it lets you know what, where the bill is um, in, in, in committee or wh what the status of it is. It gives you a quick description of the bill um, and gives you a link to take action to fight the bill if, if there's an action um, available. Um, so one, I think our, our, our job is to track these bills. Two, I think our job is to provide um, activists with legal resources to fight these bills, to share with their lawmakers, to let them know that these bills violate our Constitution, and to let them know as lawmakers that their job is to protect our rights, not take them away. Um, so I met, for many of these states, we've, we've, um, we've written um, legal memos or legal letters for your lawmakers. You can download them on the pages, and you can share them with your, with your lawmaker. And finally, I think, as I, I hope I did today, <laughs> I think our, our job is to let, let activists know or to inform activists not only what these bills do, but more importantly, what they don't do. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, I think the biggest threat that the suppression, the, the campaign to suppress Palestine advocacy has, not just in terms of anti-BDS legislation, but also what we're seeing across the country, is a chilling effect um, on our, our right to speak out. Um, and as when, our, when we feel like we don't have the right, when we're scared to speak out, um, when our speech is chilled, that hurts the movement, um, that hurts our dialogue as a democracy, um, and it, 
is not, it's, it's what's going to maintain the, the broken, broken, broken status quo on this issue. Um, and so it's really important to, to keep that in mind and to, to not be um, intimidated by the, to not be intimidated and, not to, be, and to not be misled by, by the media's messaging on these anti-boycott laws. Um, I think that's all, but I, I do want to talk about the amazing organizing work that's happening. Um, so we, we've teamed up. Um, we've teamed up. I, I would love to hear from the right to boycott folks in Maryland or Virginia that are here. Um, but some observations that I want to share that I've made at Palestine Legal about about the organizing is that you know pension fund divestment, like. Yeah, it's bad. Um, we should fight it. Um, con state contracting is blatantly unconstitutional, and we should fight it. But I think that what we should really keep in mind as we fight it, and what the coalitions that have emerged across in each states to fight these bills have done really well, is use these bills as an opportunity. Um, use these bills. And rarely does the mainstream media cover BDS but they cover legislative initiatives. And these are an opportunity to raise, to tell our neighbors and to tell our lawmakers and to tell our communities, this is not only about our constitutional rights, but this is about BDS and this is what BDS is. And the, the coalitions that have emerged um, in, states, in states across the country to fight these bills have done a really good job of seizing that opportunity, to, of, of placing op-eds in local papers, of writing letters to the editor to talk about BDS and using this as the media hook. Um, so that's one. And two, what we're seeing now in places like Maryland, um, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, um, in New York, is that these bills have created networks, have created coalitions that have come together to fight them, and those coalitions outlive the bills. Um, and those coalitions that came together to fight these bills are turning once the bills are, are once the bills are done, are turning and saying, "Oh, now we know each other. Why don't we launch a, launch a BDS campaign?" Um, so in that way, strategically, I think it's important. You know, the Israel advocacy groups behind these bills have a lot of money and have a lot of uh, power. Um, and how can we use that in our favor? Um, how can we use that strategically to um, to advance the BDS um, to, to advance BDS? Uh, I think I think it's an opportunity, and and so that's why I think that um, that that's why that I, was Rahul Saxena of Palestine Legal, preceded by Omar Shaker of the Center for um, Constitutional Rights, speaking in April at an event at the Palestine Center in Washington D.C. For a video and the full transcript of this presentation, go to electronicintifada.net or thejerusalemfund.org. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, Thank you for listening.